Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. Shalom, my friend. Shalom. Give me a wave. Okay, we're all together now, and it is so good to see all of you. I just love seeing your beautiful faces. And each time I feel like I'm matching more names uh, and faces to the prayer requests uh, that, that I have here that has like become like a sidur for me, like a prayer book for me. And then I'm putting it all together and, and making all the connections. And I really appreciate that. And what powerful, powerful, heart-wrenching prayers so many of you have been sharing. Thank you. Really, thank you for trusting me. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to share in your, in your pain and in your joy and in your journeys and for giving me the opportunity to pray, pray for you and, and pray with you. And so, uh, you know, in light of these prayer requests, I thought I would open up, you know, with our own prayer. Hashem, please answer all of our prayers. And there's so much pain. Please dry up all of our tears. Please, Hashem, bring light to those places of darkness, those places of darkness in the world and in our lives, those places of darkness that uh, we can't even imagine light being in there. But Hashem, we know that that's where the greatest light is hidden. Please, Hashem, reveal that light and release that light. We need so much healing. Hashem, it's our greatest desire that the teachings that we learn here in this fellowship and that the Torah that we learn in general throughout our lives, that it, it pierces through the calluses and it breaks down the walls and the barriers around our hearts. Please allow us to break through those walls and those barriers so that we can truly make a mishkan, a tabernacle, a dwelling place for you within us to serve as your humble, loving servants through which you can shine your light to the world. Please, Hashem, may it be so. Amen. Okay, my friends, spoiler alert. That's what the fellowship is about. It's about building a sanctuary within our hearts and shining a light of joy and happiness to the world because, uh, you know, we need it now more than ever just in Israel just a few hours ago. There was a horrible, murderous shooting of two Jews' brothers, actually, from Harbracha that were murdered on their way to Harbracha. Hashem should console their families. Hashem should avenge them. It's so horrible, so horrible. And there's so much darkness, and we really need to build these sanctuaries in our hearts, because that is the reason for all of creation. And I know it may seem like in so many of our fellowships, we say that that's what creation is all about. That's what the whole purpose is about. But really, the, the closer we come to the truth, the more everything really seems to converge. And so, uh, you know, as we know, the sages teach that Hashem created all of this, this whole world, because he desired a dwelling place in the lowest realms, in our world, whatever that means. And the only place that Hashem can truly dwell down here today in the non-tabernacle, non-temple times, the only place that Hashem could really dwell in the way that he seeks to dwell is exclusively in our hearts. And as a matter of fact, you know, that's what the entire book of Exodus is all about. I used to think, you know, when we got to these Torah portions, okay, now we're at the whole tabernacle thing. Story's pretty much over, right? This is when it gets a little bit, God forbid, but boring. 
That's the way I used to feel. And I think many of you could identify with that. But the truth is that the deeper we dig and the more dimensions we explore, um, we see that here's where the real story begins. The, the book of Exodus is not really about the Exodus. Only the beginning talks about the Exodus because the Exodus is not the true purpose of the book. The Exodus was not the end goal. The Exodus was the means to the end, but not the end in and of itself. And so what is the end? What's the purpose? The Mishkan, the tabernacle, the dwelling of Hashem in this world. That's what it's all about. This portion shares with us the true purpose. You know, as we see in chapter 25, verse 8, They shall make for me a sanctuary so that I may dwell within them. Within them is the purpose of the tabernacle for Hashem to dwell not within it, not within the tabernacle, but within us. And so if that is the purpose, so how do we do that? That's the million-dollar question. Perhaps the most important question that we can ask ourselves in this lifetime is that one. How do we make our hearts, our beings, our very essences into dwelling places for Hashem? So before I dive into the portion, which I'm very excited to do, I want to first introduce the esteemed Tehillah Gimpel. With Jeremy just walked in. Jeremy, permission. Tehillah can go first. Okay. The esteemed Tehillah Gimpel, who wants to share with us her insights about exactly that question. Salam Tehillah, here you are. And so I want to talk a little bit about the meaning of this month and how we can prepare ourselves to go into it. As many of you know, but maybe some of you don't, there's a famous saying, when the month of Adar comes in, we increase our happiness. Everyone knows this. I mean, if you go into any school in Israel, the kids are singing, Misha, 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 Nichnas Adar, Marbin Besimcha. Whenever the month of Adar comes, we increase our happiness. It's sort of just a given. Of course, in the month of Adar, we're supposed to be extra happy. But then I started thinking for a moment, like, why? But seriously, why? Like, Pesach, Passover, that's a big deal but we're happy on Passover. We never think that we need to be happy for all of the month of Nisan. Being happy is a responsibility. I don't know, maybe for some of you it comes naturally. For me, I have to work at it. Like, don't forget to be happy. So, you know, why not be happy in the whole month of Tishrei because of Sukkot and Rosh Hashanah and Shemini Atzeret and Yom Kippur? There's so many great holidays, but we don't have to be happy for all of the non-holiday days in Tishrei. So what's up with this? So I started kind of, in my nerdy way, researching this subject. It turns out there's no like super ancient source. I mean, they're all our sources are ancient, but you know, in the in the Megillah and the Scroll of Esther, there's no mention of needing to be happy throughout the month of Adar. And in all of the Mishnah, there's no month, there's no mention of needing to be happy in the month of Adar. It appears for the first time in the Talmud. What does appear in the Mishnah, in the Tractate of Ta'anid, is a statement about a different month. The Mishnah states. When the month of Av comes in, we need to have less happiness. And that kind of makes sense, right? Because even though we know the ninth of Av is the day of the destruction of the temple, so of course we're in terrible mourning on the ninth of Av, the ninth of Av didn't just happen in a moment. The destruction of the temple didn't just happen like boom, you know, there was first a siege and then the siege, you know, was breached the walls and then in the inner walls and there's, you know, this sort of development towards the final destruction and so it makes sense that from the beginning of the month we would already be sort of lowering our enthusiasm and getting into the sort of down uh, mood of the month of Av. And that's all the Mishnah says. Then comes the Talmud. When the Talmud comes to interpret the Mishnah, 
Talmud says, as we are sad in the month of Av, when the month of Av begins, so too must we be happy when the month of Adar comes in. And then <clears throat> a different rabbi in the Talmud says, asks, well, what does that happiness mean? And then he says, well, if you're having some sort of legal conflict with a Gentile, you should avoid going to trial in the month of Av, and you should try to sort of push your trial into the month of Adar. Now, I know I've shared with you some strange Talmudic passages, but you guys have to admit that this one might be the strangest. We're all just taking it as a given that we need to be happy in the month of Adar, but there isn't any source in the Mishnah for it. And then the Talmud says, because of the month of Av, we need to be, that we're sad in the month of Av, now we need to be happy in the month of Adar. And then it says, what kind of happiness? If you're having a legal conflict, then you should choose to have, like you'll have good luck or something in that month. And therefore, we're all running around dancing and singing that we're happy in Adar. You guys have to admit that that's extra strange, even for the kind of sources that I like to bring you guys. Now, you'll say, but Tehillah, go look at Rashi. Rashi will explain everything. So we look at Rashi, and Rashi says, well, the month of Adar it has Purim, and then the month of Nisan has Pesach, and those are related to one another. And so therefore, we're happy. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. We've been busy trying to figure out how Adar is related to the month of Av. Now you're connecting, Rashi, you're connecting Adar to the month of Nisan, and then you're telling us that the kind of happiness we have, you know, there's certain types of happiness that we have on holidays. Maybe it's having a celebratory meal, special prayers. You're saying the special kind of happiness that we need to have now is that we're going to have good luck in these times because somehow all of this is related to Pesach. That is super strange. I think maybe the key to understanding this is actually a different Midrash in the Tractate of Megillah. There it says, you know, it's interesting, the Megillah, it doesn't say that Haman, Haman just, you know, uh, threw a, you know, a lottery to see which day it should be. It said first he tried to figure out the month and then the day. And he specifically went first to the month because the month had significance. It wasn't like he was just picking a day. He wanted to first focus in on a month that would be good for destroying Israel. And the Midrash says that when it fell on Adar, he was extraordinarily happy because he knew that Moshe Rabbeinu, that Moses, had died in the month of Adar. So he said that that means that's a bad luck month for the Jewish people. Therefore, he was happy. But the Midrash says the joke was on him because he didn't realize that the righteous are known to be born and to die on the same, the same day very often. And so Moshe actually also was born in Adar, meaning at the beginning of our salvation, started in Adar as well. So you, Haman, think that that's our dark time, but it's actually our light time. Now, if we sort of try to bring this all together, what does that mean? It means that there's a connection between the type of salvation that we have on Passover, the type of salvation that we have on Adar, and that the Talmud is trying to draw our attention to a certain type of happiness that we're supposed to draw in these months, okay? So let, and, then, and then it's also related to the month of Av and to the destruction of the temple, but as like a mirror opposite. So let's try to bring all these ideas together. What is, what is, the, what is it trying to tell us? Does that mean that, you know, or is it trying to tell us, well, you know, there's good luck months and bad luck months. Is it like a horoscope? That seems to be Haman's approach. That doesn't seem to be our approach. I think if we put this all together, what do we know? We have holidays that celebrate different things. 
but the real holidays of salvation where it looked like our neck was in the noose and we were about to be destroyed, but then Hashem saved us mercifully. Those are Purim and Pesach. We have Hanukkah too, but Hanukkah was a 26-year war. And, you know, the day that we celebrate it was for, you know, the, the, the miracle of the oil. It wasn't like the specific day of the salvation. We have two holidays that mark real salvation. On the other hand, we have the month of Av, where Hashem dealt with us less in the attribute of mercy, but more in the attribute of justice, where we got what we deserved. You know, we, we sinned and we had destruction. And so that's a time, you know, what, what are the sages teaching us? That when you have a month like the month of Av, it's a time for caution and reflection and realizing that you need to have a fear of heaven and, you know, to tread very, very cautiously and carefully. When the month of Adar begins, what is the Midrash telling us? Adar is a time that lends itself to salvation. It's a time that Hashem set into sort of the, the calendar where he is extra generous in showing us his mercy, that he's with us, that he will deal with us miraculously, even when things seem to be lost. Why is Rashi connecting Purim to Passover? Because he's saying, look carefully, look at this Midrash, pay attention. It's true that the, the final salvation of Pesach happened, a Passover happened in the month of Nisan. But when did it begin? It began with the birth of Moshe. When were all of the plagues? They were all in the month of Adar. So he's saying, pay attention. Even the salvation of Passover is really rooted in the month of Adar. And so that moment was set into time. And he's saying that when when our enemies look at those times, they don't really understand our relationship with Hashem. They don't understand that Hashem through dark times accompanies us and lifts us up with mercy. And so he didn't understand that relationship. He just looked at the darkness of the month of Adar and thought this is going to be a great time for annihilation. He didn't understand. And so when we look at Adar, we see these times in our history where Hashem said, I see that you're in the darkest place, but I'm going to save you. I'm going to lift you up. And so when the Talmud is saying, that's a good time to have, you know, your conflict with it specifically says in the Talmud, a conflict with a Gentile. What does that mean, a conflict with a Gentile? Is that just like, oh, well, I was having some lawsuit. Let me go do it in Adar. What it's trying to say is that when you have a conflict and you feel like all is lost, focus in on the, the message of the month of Adar. Try to bring that into Adar and connect with that special time where Hashem is so generous with his love to us, specifically in our relationship with the, with the nations that would seek our destruction with people that would seek our destruction. And so it's a time for not a happiness of, oh yeah, you know, let's drink and merry make and eat food. It's a totally different kind of happiness. The Talmud is saying, don't, don't, don't think that this is the regular happiness. This is the happiness that comes from that quiet confidence and knowledge that even in dark times, Hashem is going to come and save us like he did in Egypt and like he did in the book of Esther. So with that, I wish us a Chodesh Tov, a blessed new month of Adar that we go in and experience in all of our dealings and in all of our frightening, you know, interactions that we feel that energy of Adar giving us that emunah and bitachon, that faith in Hashem that He is with us, just like He was with our fathers. Bye guys, have a great month. Hey, shalom everybody.
Thank you, Tehila. That was beautiful. I'm in um, the guest house in the farm. You can see Ari's face kind of coming in and out. There he is behind us. There he is. We're all together now. And today has been an absolute mad day. Can everyone hear me? Is the internet connection here working? Can I have some thumbs up here? Yeah. Okay, good. Excellent. Thank you so much, Eric. It's so nice to see you all the way in Colorado. I miss you, my friend. Thank you for that thumbs up. <laughs> and so um, here's uh, what's going on. Today, we've had a, a small Torah group from North Carolina, a mega church with 100,000 members from Dallas, Texas. We right now have 44 Jewish mothers from America that are here. And I think the idea there is brilliant. It's like you strengthen the mothers, you strengthen the entire home. And it's just been a packed day of intense teaching and touring on the Arugot farm. I just got here and this is the month of happiness. That's what the month of Adar is. That's what Tehillah is talking about. And that's what I want to share with you today. And I just got this message from one of our fellowship members, Erin. Um, and here's what she wrote to me. Good day, Jeremy. I hope this message finds you well. I wanted to send you a follow-up to the prayer request I sent at the beginning of the fellowship. I asked you to pray for a husband. Guess what? My husband and I met just about 10 weeks ago and we just got married. I wanted you all to celebrate in the joy of this answered prayer request. He is literally everything I asked Hashem for. And so, I don't know, that just made my Adar happy. <laughs> just really, really fun, really, really awesome. And I just wanna share like a spirit with you because it's hard to like, what does that mean that Adar is a happy month? Because there are spiritual powers that are encoded, almost like spiritual potentials, auspicious times for certain energies in the world. Elul is a time for renewal and self-reflection and kind of getting ready for the new year. Passover is a time of freedom to free ourselves from all of our slaveries. Adar is a time of happiness. I just want to show you this video that I just got sent from um, a yeshiva to see these young Jewish men growing up. Watch the energy here and see if you can find any other young Jewish men or young men at all anywhere in the world that exude this type of holy, masculine, happy energy. Look at this video here. that I don't believe anywhere in the world. And so um, that's sort of the energy that's just in the air here. But it's not enough to just be in the air. Avoda, it's like a, it's a service of God. It is, we have to work on it because there's so many reasons to not be happy. There's a reason that we can be concerned. We can be nervous. We can be upset. We can be anxious. We can be just, you know, there's like, we can always choose what to think about. And we don't always necessarily want to choose about the things that make us happy. But Adar is saying, Marvin Basimha, no, we're actually told this is the time to crank out the happiness, to bring it out within us. And one of the things that makes me happiest is just looking at Israel. So someone sent me this beautiful picture of Israel about a hundred some odd years ago and Israel today. That on the left there at 1909, those people standing on the sand dunes, that's Tel Aviv in 1909. And that one right there, that's Tel Aviv in 2020. 
Like, look at what is happening in the sand dunes of Israel. It's just very often, you know, there's a saying in Psalms, um, God is good for his love endures forever. Ki le'olam Now, his love endures forever. Forever isn't necessarily the right word there. Le'olam means in eternity. So sometimes you need like a little bit of an eternal view to really experience God's love. You need the bird's eye view to see the trajectory about where we're going and to see those you know, 20 Jews sitting on the sand dunes in Israel trying to figure out how they're going to build the first new city in the land of Israel and then to see what Israel has built over the last 100 years. To me, that just makes me happy. But that's not it. I want to now take it to another level. This is a Torah, actually, that Ari taught me. And I think about it all the time. Uh, I've actually, it's a, it's a little chapter in my book. I think it's so important. But if you open up to Psalm 100, look at what it says. Mizmor Hashem kol A psalm of thanks. Cheer to Hashem, all of the earth. Serve Hashem with happiness. it Hashem basimcha. Come before him with song. Keep that up on the screen for just a moment. Serve Hashem with happiness. I always thought that that meant, listen, there's a lot of ways to serve God. Take care of the orphan. Take care of the widow. Feed the poor. Help those that need help. Celebrate Shabbat. Eat kosher food. And when you are serving God, serve Hashem with happiness. I thought that's what it's saying. And I think that that is a legitimate way of reading that. But King David says something so much deeper. It's saying, serve Hashem. How? How do we serve God? It's like, serve Hashem with happiness. That is a service. God wants us to be happy. That is the service. It's not the outcome, and it's not just a branch. The service of God is like, if you are living an inspired happy, meaningful life, and you're filled with happiness, that is the service of God. God created the world to bestow his good. And when he sees that we're happy, that is the service. That's all he wants. And so I want to make this really practical. And I want to give over three methods that I've been learning about in a beautiful book about how to engender happiness according to the ancient Jewish spiritual practices. There's three that are really powerful. You can do all three of them. You can choose to do one of them. But as we enter into Adar before Purim, this is the service. The service is the happiness. So how do we like generate that? What can we do to actually bring that into our lives? So there are three spiritual practices that the Musar movement uh, kind of gave over. And the Musar movement was kind of established, maybe kind of gave birth in the 1800s. And it was a beautiful, kind of squashed really by the Nazis. And it's almost kind of disappeared and forgotten about. But it was a beautiful kind of bud that came out of Europe saying, you know, the Torah is really trying to mold us in to the people we were meant to be. And so how do we really focus on that side of our service of God? And I said, these three practices are amazing tools if you want to engender those. So let's work on it with happiness. Can we get them up on the screen, please? So the first practice is called Hit Boninut. Hit Boninut, I translated it as meditation, but 
Really, the word is, is to look. And what they're saying there is, take one verse from the Bible, one verse from the sages of Israel, one verse that's something meaningful in your life, and look at it, think about it, chant it, sing it. You know, sometimes my little kids, they say, Abba, you know, your music isn't so modern. It doesn't have enough words. Your music is usually just like two or three verses from the Bible that repeat each other. And I'm like, well, I, I'm not really singing popular music. I'm, I'm singing Jewish music. I'm teaching people Hitone Nut. I'm teaching them how to take one verse of prayer and to really sing it over and over again. And as you think about it and you look at it and you study that verse, and if you're focusing on happiness, choose the ones that bring joy to your life. Think about the things that you're grateful for. You know, sometimes I walk outside in the mountains here. And I just say the words, thank you, over and over and over again. In English, by the way, not in Hebrew. Just say, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for my wife. Thank you for my life. Thank you for my children. Thank you for my farm. Thank you for my fellowship. Thank you for my friends. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Just over. And it's so natural. It's so natural to say thank you. And I, it inspires me. Then. It's just so obviously wired that we were created to give thanks. And who is this you that I'm so naturally saying thank you to? It's just so natural to live in a state of gratitude. And then what did Psalm 100 say? A psalm of thanks and then serve Hashem with joy. So hit boninut, meditation on verses of gratitude, that's going to bring out joy. Because we can think about the things that we don't have, or we can really focus on the gratitude on the things that we do. The next one, can we get the screen back up, please? The next one is called Hit Bodedut. And Hit Bodedut literally comes from the Hebrew word Boded, which means alone. And what that's saying is you need to have time alone. You need to have time away from your house. You need to have time away from your children. You need to have time away from your husband, away from your wife, away from the TV, away from your phone, away from people, away from distractions. Find a place that you can be alone. Maybe you can even do it in the car. Maybe you can do it in a forest behind your house or in a field or on a trail around a lake. Or for us in the mountains, it's kind of easy. I just like walk outside and just like walk out a little bit into the mountains. I'm already all alone. But being alone is so important because the thoughts that are inside, instead of constantly having stimulus that you are listening to what the media is telling you, pinging on your phones, notifications on your phones, Finally, the stuff that's on the inside is able to come to fall. The stuff that's inside you is able to come to like the forefront of your consciousness. And in those places when you're alone, that's when you can practice heat bone practice. That's how all of my music album came from me, just being alone with my guitar in the mountains. And then melodies came, just more gratitude, and more gratefulness. And that is the second arguably the most important spiritual practice. Every prophet, every single one, they were alone when they were receiving their nevuah. They're just in their own thoughts, in their own minds, connecting to God in their own way. And the world is so distracting now. The world has never been more distracting. A hundred years ago, compared to where we are today, it's like we, we are literally aliens to compare to the people like our great-grandparents. They, they can't even imagine the amount of things that are thrown at us every day, billboards and signs and magazines and phones and TVs and computers alone. 
detach, <laughs> alone, seclusion, hit bodhidu. The third practice, can we get it up on the screen, please? The third practice is called, is it up here? Hmm? I don't see it. There we go. Cheshbo Nefesh. And Cheshbo Nefesh is soul searching. But this particularly Cheshbo Nefesh is in journaling. Actually taking a journal, taking your thoughts, and then bringing it into words. Journaling the things that you're grateful for. Now, I told you that I try to practice this every day. Seven things that I'm grateful for with Tehillah. I don't always able to do it 70s because I have ADHD and I'm always doing other things, but I've never lost the goal of every day thanking Tehillah for seven things that she does. And it just, the days that I do that, the days that I remember, oh, those are the best days. They only generate happiness in me. I become happier with her because I'm noticing the wonderful things that she's doing for me that she didn't have to do. I'm just grateful for. And then it makes her happy because she's hearing that I'm being grateful and that I'm recognizing and seeing the things that she's doing that may have just been taken for granted or may have just been ignored. And so actually writing down, writing down the things that we're grateful for are the things that is like the engine to trigger our happiness. And so this is the time of year to take the thoughts, to take the ideas, but then the sages of Israel, the wisdom is so beautiful. This is the month to like crank out the joy, sing, dance, to be happy. And so I want to bless everyone in the fellowship, but they take those three practices, at least one in this month, and then be blessed with happiness, be blessed with Torah, be blessed with Adar as we <laughs> celebrate the last Geula in the Bible. It's the last redemption. May that be a sign that we come to the last Kitula in our times. Amen. All right. That's enough. Father. You go take your happiness somewhere else, Kimpel. That was beautiful. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Jeremy, wait. Jeremy. Turn out your phone. That would have been a problem. Okay. Jeremy tangled this up. I don't know exactly what he did here, but I'm going to try to undo it. There we go. Okay. So Jeremy, Tehillah, they both shared. Can you hear me? Everybody give me a thumbs up. So they shared their ideas about joy, happiness, what it's all about. And, uh, you know, I'm sitting here listening, thinking to them, because I often feel conflicted about that message. Sometimes I'm like, well, I feel like we may be setting ourselves up for, for failure on some level. I don't know. I'm, we're going to work it through on this thing. But, um, okay, we're talking about joy. Let, let's start here. I, I think the challenge... The many of us have is that, you know, is that we say that it's it's such a high level, such a service to Hashem to be filled with joy. But when we position it like that, it's very difficult to do because joy isn't really the goal, right? Joy is the product, the outcome, almost the gauge to know whether the real mission, the real purpose is being fulfilled. I want to see on your comments whether this is making sense to you. Meaning it, whether we're truly internalizing the knowledge that Hashem runs the world and everything is for the best, joy is the outcome of that. It's the product. It's, um, and, and anyways, it's, it's really intricately tied in to the message in this week's Torah portion about the, the tabernacle and Truma. So before we dive in the first verse, I think it's worth taking a moment to reflect on the very idea of a mishkan, of a tabernacle. Why is it necessary at all? If the truth is, as we say, right, there's nothing other than Hashem, then why is it necessary or even possible to have a house 
for Hashem. So Rabbi Sachs uh, summons the words of King Solomon from the inauguration of the temple. And it, the, these words really strengthen the question itself. It's from the, uh, the book of Kings, right? Chapter 8. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this house I have built. Seems like a sort of a difficult thing to say in the inauguration of the temple itself. And he actually strengthens the question further with uh, you know, a quote that he brings from, from Isaiah. Right, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. This is from chapter 66. What house can you build for me? Where will my resting place be? Now, there's a verses that I, I, I had to share here because it strengthens me and it really fortifies me in my journey. And this is, uh, this is from the book of, of Psalms, chapter 139. Where can I escape from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I descend to Sheol, you are there too. If I take wing with the dawn to come to rest on the western horizon, even there your hand will be guiding me. Your right hand will be holding me fast. If I say, surely darkness will conceal me. Night will provide me with cover. Darkness is not dark for you. Night is as light as day. Darkness and light are the same. Right? Hashem is everywhere. So why any of this tabernacle thing? Right? Why is this temple stuff necessary? The whole world is this tabernacle, right? And I think that the answer is because while each of us strive to make a dwelling place for Hashem in our personal hearts, we also have a national mission. We have a collective identity as well. And the tabernacle provided a meeting place where we as a nation, right, traveling through the lonely dangers of the desert, where we could come close to Hashem. You know, as many of you know, on a chronological level, and I think this is pretty much universally agreed upon, the golden calf actually happened before the laws of the tabernacle that we're reading right now. It's, uh, you know, it's the principle that there's no... Um, you know, before and after in the Torah, the uh, Hashem organizes the Torah in a way that is thematically relevant and not necessarily about what happened exactly when. And so our sages say that the sheer panic and terror the nation felt when Moshe disappeared up the mountain was so great, their loneliness was so overwhelming, that Hashem determined that there would be a place where they would always be able to come close and to feel close that it was really a, a result of the golden calf that they needed this tabernacle. That became very clear. Well, what does that mean, right? To, to come close, to be close to Hashem. Aren't we always close to Hashem? Remember the famous story of the two fish in the water and one says to the other, do you believe in water? The other says, I don't know, my grandfather did. I don't know if I believe in water. And then they are immersed in water. So what does it mean to be close to Hashem if we're all immersed in that water? Immersed in Hashem. So we've talked about this before, but it's important enough and timely enough that I really think it's worth visiting again. Okay, so if there's if there's nothing other than Hashem, then what does it mean to be close or far? We're approaching the holiday of Purim. As, as Tehila mentioned, Jeremy mentioned, what happens in Purim? We celebrate the forces of light overcoming the impending forces of darkness that seemed like they were going to emerge victorious. Uh, the righteous Mordechai overcomes the evil Haman. But if we're all immersed in God's undifferentiated oneness, then what makes Mordechai closer to Hashem than Haman? They're both totally immersed in Hashem's oneness. So we get the question. All right, and, and I think the answer 
that we've discussed before is that in the spiritual realm, there is no physical distance. Physical distance is a construct of this world and is ultimately an illusion, right? In the world of truth, closeness is similarity to. When you're similar to something, you're close to them. And distance is difference from. So why is Mordechai closer to Hashem than Haman? Because by being a man of love and kindness and compassion and givingness, he's actually channeling Hashem's light into the world. Because Hashem is those things. And what Hashem, Hashem is those things, but those attributes are Hashem's attributes or among them. And what's closer than actually serving as a tabernacle within which Hashem dwells and through he illuminates the world, what could be closer than that than being an actual funnel? It's not like Hashem is next to us. He's through us. He's infusing us. He's channeling his light through us. And that's why the first time the entire concept of the Mishkan tabernacle is introduced is in chapter 25, verses 1 and 2. So it says, okay. Speak to the children of Israel and let them take for me a portion from every person whose heart motivates them uh, generosity. From him you shall take my portion. The whole concept is introduced with the invitation for each and every person. Right, not the judges and the and the priests or the princes or the aristocracy, but Kol Ish, every single person, every single person has a portion in the Mishkan, has an opportunity to give to become a part of the greatest mission in the world, to build a dwelling place for God in the physical universe. And so the verse begins: "Take for me a portion," which leads us to the famous question, as you all know: Why does Hashem say "take"? from me a portion and not give to me a portion. And so the Sforno and others say that Hashem was speaking to the leaders who were tasked with collecting the free will donations. And while that's true, I think on a simple level, on a, on a deeper level, the message is that when you give to a truly godly, divine cause, when you give of yourself to Hashem, you actually are taking, right? When we give to Hashem, we end up receiving far more than we actually give. You know, I'm sure everyone in this fellowship can testify to that truth. Raise your hand if you have experienced that before. That when we really give of ourselves with, with God in mind, we end up feeling that we've received far more than we've given. And the word uh, for donation here is the title of the portion itself, truma, which has the root word rom, right? Which means to uplift, the romem, meaning that when you have the opportunity to give to Hashem, and you take that opportunity, you seize that opportunity, you are the one that is elevated and uplifted through the experience. And interestingly enough, um, the Torah doesn't even say what uh, the nation is being called to give towards until verse 8 in the portion, right? Meaning that the first seven verses describe what needs to be given, and only when we get to verse 8 do we even find out why, what it's for. Only in verse 8 is the word mikdash, tabernacle even mentioned, which is really counterintuitive, right? Usually when making a request, we first give the reasons, and only in the end do we make the actual ask, right? When people come out to the farm, and they let me know that they're considering supporting us, I first take them around and share the biblical importance of what we're doing, and then the strategic military importance of what we're doing for the safety and security, not only of Judea, but for all of Israel. 
And, um, and only afterwards do I share, uh, you know, after I share all those reasons, do I share what it is that we need to further this mission. But that's not the case here. Here we're told everything that's needed, even before we find out what it's for. And I think that the reason for that is because ultimately Hashem wants us to love Him as He loves us, right? Unconditional. Hashem doesn't want, you know, dependent, conditional love. He wants our hearts. He wants our hearts. He wants us to love Him unconditionally without knowing all the hows or the whys or any of the other details. And by being given the opportunity to give to Hashem after how much He's given to us, Right, Jeremy's talking about just walking around saying, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. If we had the eyes, there would be something following each of those thank yous. We may not see it. We may not have the eyes to see it, but we know that it's overwhelming. You know, so, so when we have the opportunity to give Hashem after how much he's given us, by having the opportunity to give Hashem, not from a place of compulsion, but from a place of desire, well, that is the greatest opportunity imaginable. And I think that is what makes the tabernacle so beautiful in the eyes of Hashem. What makes it so beautiful to Hashem is that it is a gift from us. Right? Hashem could provide it all very easily himself, much more easily, as a matter of fact, than it would take him to ask us for anything. He could provide it for himself without the vulnerability of rejection that comes when you make any sort of request or the disappointment that would happen when we probably would fall short in that very likely. But that is the point. The point is that it comes from us. The greatest kindness Hashem gives us is that He gives us the opportunity to give Him. Maybe it isn't even that we're told what we can give so that the tabernacle is built. But maybe, right? Maybe the whole idea is that the tabernacle is built so that we have the opportunity to give to it. Right? So that we have the opportunity to give to Hashem in such a special way that's why the tabernacle needed to be guilt, built to begin with. And this isn't just true when it comes to the giving of the tabernacle, but to any giving. Right? This is true with the charity tithes that we even give today. How many of you try, maybe that's a personal question you don't need to answer, but how many of you try to give to tithe, to give charity, to give that 10%? Right? I would say most of you, yes, I'm seeing all the hands go up and that doesn't shock me at all. Right? The, you could even read the first verse, right? Take from me a portion from every person whose heart motivates them to generosity. From him, you shall take my portion. So Rav Biederman shares, Libo, his heart. You read it like this. If you want to know what's going on in his heart, Libo, in his heart, then take my truma. Meaning if you want to really know what's going on in his heart, then see how he gives tzedakah, how he gives charity. When he gives tzedakah, what's happening within him? Does he give it angrily, resentfully, begrudgingly, or is he filled with happiness and joy and gratitude? <clears throat> gratitude, not only that he has the resources to be the giver and not the receiver. That's a blessing that we often give people. You should always be blessed to be on the side of giving and not, not needing to receive but also that he has the opportunity to give, that there's someone to whom he has the opportunity to give to. You know, Shlomo Karabach would always, always thank everybody when he gave them tzedakah, that, he, that they were willing to receive from him, that they gave him the opportunity. How someone gives their maser, their tithes, their charity, their tzedakah, is indeed a gauge 
for their spiritual health. How one gives charity says far more about them than necessarily how much they give and, and who they give it to. Because, you know, when things are tight and we're already stressed, and these are difficult times, and I think a lot of us know exactly what I'm talking about. I've read the prayer request. I know that many of us know exactly what we're talking about here. To give 10% away is not an easy task. And it doesn't make someone evil to struggle with it. It doesn't make you stingy. It doesn't make you selfish. It makes you human. It makes you human. It makes you a person. And therefore, particularly when things are scarce, the way that you feel when you're giving can be a very valuable test to gauge to see how you're standing spiritually, at least in, in this realm of reality. And the solace that we can take from this whole thing, the solace that we can take from the pain that we experience when we give is that the tighter things are, the more it, the more it hurts when you give, the more valuable the giving is in the eyes of Hashem, right? Lefum Tsara Agra, according to the pain is the reward. Arguably, someone who made, you know, $10,000, them giving $1,000 is more precious to Hashem than someone who made $10 million and gave a million away, usually. You know, as you know, there's no blanket rules when it comes to these things. It varies based on the heart of the person, and only Hashem knows that. But you understand what I'm saying, right? I've, I don't even know if I understand what I'm saying. But anyways, there's something to that. Rav Biederman explains in the name of the Yetav Lev that this is why Hashem desires our truma, our free will love offerings, more than any other creation or living thing in the world. He desires our offerings because we are the only creations that have been imbued with free will. We're the only creations made in his image and in his likeness. And to take the question one step further, what is it that gives us this free will? What is it that differentiates us from every other creation? And the answer is, drum roll, our Yetzer Hara, our evil inclination. And yes, we're about to go there. We're going back there, back to the issue of, of Satan, right? Or the Satan. Um, it's pronounced in English as, as Satan, but really the, those two words have totally different meanings because of the, the context and the connotations of them. But as we've discussed in the past, you know, many Christians perceive the Satan as a fallen angel that rebels and fights against Hashem. And as you know by now, that's not at all how the Jewish people understand the Satan. In Torah, you know, thought, in, in Torah thinking, such an idea is not only impossible, but it's also really dualistic. It contradicts the foundational principles of, of the Torah, that there would be a force outside or external to God that God is battling against. It's not even fathomable. So we see that the Satan is the prosecutorial angel who Hashem has appointed for this role. And in this angel, the Satan is also the force of the evil inclination within us, right? It's the same name. It's the same force. It's the same energy. It's the same power, the evil inclination within us. When Adam ate from the forbidden fruit, the evil inclination of the Satan became infused within us. And it's this evil inclination which causes all of the struggles within us. And it's our overcoming of these struggles which gives Hashem pleasure, you know, that, that gives Hashem the savory aroma. By harnessing the power and the strength of our love for Hashem to overcome the very human emotions of selfishness and anger and resentment and hatred and that whole family of stuff, that's what creation is all about. And so the sages teach that when we overcome our Yetzir Hara, right, our evil inclination, 
in order to fulfill a commandment, to perform a mitzvah, to serve Hashem? Well, in his eyes, it's worth a thousand mitzvot that we do without any resistance from the evil inclination. Right? Overcoming our lower base impulses and inclinations to serve Hashem is more valuable than any deed we commit in which the evil inclination is, is, is not warring against us. When we're facing an evil inclination that's using every manipulative argument in the book, right? when we're battling a Yetzer Hara that is playing every deceitful, seductive trick that it's amassed over the past 5,000 plus years, when we're contending with these challenges, these wars that are happening within us, and we overcome them, well, that's what life is all about. That's what makes life worth living. That's the whole reason we're here. Serving Hashem in such, a, in such a true and deep way, that is the secret to true happiness. Or that is the secret that results in, in true happiness. You know, Rav Biederman actually shared a perspective that really strengthened me and I think may strengthen a lot of you as well. And he explained that sometimes people who are older can become full of regret that they didn't devote their lives to the service of Hashem when they were younger, that they didn't know, that they weren't exposed to it, that they didn't do all this stuff when they were younger. They regret that they're coming to this now and they feel like it's too late. And that uh, they feel like in truth, at this stage of their life, it really may not matter. Have any of you ever experienced a thought that even resembles that? Right? I know that I have, but I'm like, oh, I just wish I knew it before I wish. But the good news the good news, I'm going to share the good news with you. The good news is that in Hashem's eyes, the opposite is true. The opposite is true, is, uh, opposite is true because the older we get, the harder it is to change. Right? We all know that. You're right. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. There's a reason that's such a famous saying. I don't think that there's any debate that it's 100 times harder to change when you're older. And so, because it's so much harder the reward one gets for successfully changing when you're older is a hundred times more than successfully changing when you were young and it was so much easier, right? Does that make sense, right? That's like, I don't know, that just it really hit me the right way. Anyway, so back to the tabernacle. While we mourn that we don't have, you know, a beautiful, glorious temple built on Mount Moriah, right? The, the mountain of teaching in the heart of Jerusalem while we mourn that we don't have the tabernacle and its miracles with us on our journey through this insane, outrageous world, the fact that we don't have the tabernacle and the temple is actually really an opportunity for us right now. Because when that great day comes, that the temple is built, may it be soon, when that day comes, we won't have this opportunity anymore. And what opportunity am I talking about? The opportunity to have our hearts as the only place Really the only place for Hashem to dwell in this world. I'll share with you a parable that uh, Rav Biederman shares. I think it may be from Rabbi Nachman, but I got it from Rav Biederman. And it, it's a parable that really illustrates this idea. It's a story of a king who was banished from his palace and banished from his kingdom. And a, uh, a simple, he was on the run, right? And, and the simple, humble, modest, uh, loyal servant of the king sought out the king and found him. And he was a poor man, and he didn't have much, but he brought the king to his home. He cleaned his home. He made the king dry bread, which is really all that he could afford. He made a, a bed of hay for the king on the floor right next to his bed of hay. It was all he had. 
And while this was far beneath the dignity of the king, the king rejoiced in it, for it was an act of love. And at that special time, at that moment, it was the only place left for the king to go. And that's our souls. That's our hearts right now in this world. There is no tabernacle. There is no temple. We can make our hearts the dwelling place for God in the world when there's really no other place for God to go, where that's what he desires the most as things are right now. And so the question is how, right? Jeremy spoke about it. Tila spoke about it. Sometimes I feel like I'm a perpetual search quest, chasing my tail, figuring it out, remembering, arbitrarily forgetting. How can we make a home in our hearts for Hashem? Now, I think it may have been Rabbi Foreman that pointed out that the tabernacle is an exact parallel from below to what Hashem did from above. Have you heard this idea? This, the universe was undifferentiated oneness. There was no universe. It was just Hashem's undifferentiated oneness, and Hashem withdrew himself, or he withdrew the perception of himself, the consciousness, the awareness of himself in this world to allow for the existence of humanity, to allow for us to exist. And so by building the tabernacle for Hashem, we're building a dwelling place for the divine, for the infinite, from within the finite. So what we're doing for Hashem, what he did for us, like on a micro level, building the temple, building the tabernacle, it allows for something which really should be impossible, which should be a contradiction in terms. It allows for us to have the opportunity to actually give something to Hashem, right? Because life is the ultimate gift. And giving is the ultimate expression of Hashem's relationship with us. We're so inundated with Hashem's gifts that if we had the eyes to see all of the gifts, our mouths would be filled with gratitude and praise and song. We'd not be able to say or do anything else. And so how do we reciprocate all the giving that Hashem has bestowed upon us? We create a dwelling place for Him in this world by spending our lives becoming givers. Right? When we replace anger with with patience and with kindness we become givers when we replace hatred with compassion we become givers when we give people the benefit of the doubt we become givers when we become a wellspring of love and light in a world that is so filled with hatred and darkness it's so easy to fall into it to react to it in the most natural way, but when we overcome the natural, automatic way of seeing things within the obfuscation and the mask of this world, and we infuse within us our faith and our trust in Hashem, then we become givers. And then we're able to elevate our base natural instincts of selfishness into givingness. And only then does our heart transform to a, a dwelling place for Hashem in the world, a, tr- a true dwelling place for Hashem in the world. And it's then that we can look at our greatest adversaries, the greatest right thorns in our sides, the greatest sources of our torment and pain, and we can finally see them as what they are. They're our greatest blessings, because without them, we wouldn't have that contra, right? We wouldn't have the pushback. We wouldn't have the opportunity to truly serve Hashem and give to Him. It is they who give us the opportunity to elevate ourselves and to elevate the entire world with us. And that's why our sages say that a thousand prophets couldn't accomplish what Haman's seal was able to accomplish. 
not his seal like at the, with the ball on his nose, the seal like on his ring that he put into the wax on the document that said the nation of Israel would be wiped out on the 14th of Adar because Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and the prophets of Israel each came and called on the nation to do tshuva. And pretty much every time, what did we do? Did we repent? Did we do tshuva? No, we simply didn't listen. We didn't do tshuva, no matter how fervently they begged and pleaded and warned. But then Haman comes along and declares that the nation will be wiped out in a genocide of historic proportions. And that is actually what sparks the greatest mass repentance of the nation of Israel in all of history. It's funny because it seems that despite the, you know, the horrible threats on the left, it seems that the judicial reform that we discussed last week miraculously is about to pass in the Knesset. And so I'm shocked at how many people are arguing against these reforms. Family members of mine, people that I know, I guess you, have to, you had to have been terrorized by the Supreme Court to really understand how horrible it is. And there's such, you all know around the world, the media power of the left to really sway people's thinkings. It takes character to stand against what it feels like the whole country and the whole world and everybody's saying it takes character. You don't want to do it. But to me, it's so obviously clear. And it seems like these, the Supreme Court thing is about to pass. It's difficult to imagine. You know, and last week, as I touched on the issue, many of you requested that Tahila actually share with us what all of this is really about. Because one thing I've learned from so many of you is that when you really love Israel, you want to know it all. You want to hear the good and the bad and the ugly. You want to know what's happening, warts, all the whole thing. You don't want it whitewashed. You want the whole story. And so I asked Tahila to make a short video to explain it so a guy like me can really understand it. And she agreed. And she took an issue that would normally take hours to explain. And she laid it out so beautifully in just 17 minutes. I know it sounds like a lot, but this is Tahila we're talking about. It's concise. And although I haven't heard it, I'm sure it's going to be worth it. And being that that goes beyond the uh, normal time limit of our fellowship, as we're approaching that right now, I just want to quickly share a thought that I had about it with all of you. I want to bless all of you. And then those of you who want to learn from the wellsprings of Tehillah's wisdom and brilliance uh, and understanding of this critical issue once and for all can stay on afterwards because we're going to play it right then. But before I want to introduce you, like I said, I wanted to share that I've, uh, you know, I've spent some time reflecting on what actually led to this unbelievable turn of events that we're right on the threshold of, of the overthrow of the Supreme Court oligarchy in this country. And I was thinking about what led to this unique government, and I realized that lo and behold, the answer was Naftali Bennett. Hashem should bless him with everything good in the world, other than any lovers of power, but without getting into all the details, for those of you who don't remember and aren't like living at all and remembering everything, Naftali Bennett, he used to be a friend of ours, actually. He was on our television show. He ran as a right-wing leader on the premise, the premise that he would prevent the Netanyahu government from going left and making a coalition with the left-wing parties and Israel-hating Arab parties. And he barely broke the threshold. I think he had four or five seats. And in one of the greatest bold-faced lies in Israel's history. He did exactly what he promised he wouldn't do. And he made a coalition with Israel-hating Arab parties and leftist parties so that he could become prime minister. 
And if you remember, I had some trouble controlling myself. I felt a lot of anger. Many of us did. We felt so infuriated and so betrayed. But in retrospect, it was that move which led to the nation voting for Ben Gvir in the next elections that they rightfully believed that he was not a, a wishy-washy sort of compromising type of guy like Bennett was, that he wouldn't lie to them. And so it was actually Bennett's betrayal that sent the rest of the party, the rest of the country, even further right than they've ever gone before, which led to this government, which is actually doing truly good things that I would have thought nearly impossible. You know, I've been holding my breath. I was refusing to be too happy, just we've been so disappointed so many times, voting right and getting left. But day after day, we're seeing real, great, beautiful things happening. So much like Haman seal is what ultimately led the repentance of the Jewish people, it was Bennett that brought this whole thing about. I wish I had the faith and the presence of mind then not to get all wound up in the tizzy to say Hashem knows what he's doing. He's running the world. Anyways, it's an, inter it's an interesting experience to be so deeply immersed in these dramas that are unfolding in Israel, to feel so passionately about it, to really care about it, and to try to do things to, to move it forward. And at the same time, to really try to recognize that ultimately Hashem is running the entire show, not to get too wound up, like I said. Hashem's expertly orchestrating every detail in order to bring the nation of Israel to return our hearts to Him, to seek His faith, to place our faith and our trust in him, our emunah and our bitachon in him. And ultimately, there are only two ways that we can truly give to Hashem, right? By, by the, the, the only ways we can really give to him are by trusting in him with such unreasonable, relentless faith that we're able to create a dwelling place for him, not only in our hearts as individuals, but in the temple that we will soon build, please God, as a nation. So, you know, just last week, I don't know if you heard, groups in America, as we're approaching Purim, shows a day of hate against the Jews of America. Did you hear about this? The day of hate, they had a day of hate. Iran, Persia, they're on the verge of developing weapons-grade enriched uranium. Things are looking dark and foreboding, but as we will soon see, just as in the book of Esther, Haman flipped everything for the good, we'll soon see all the darkness in this world transformed into light. All the badness in this world transformed into good. And that's our job, to transform the darkness into light in the recesses of our own hearts. And by doing that, each and every one of us, kol ish, right? Every single one of us matters here. Each of us, when we do that, we hasten the great revelation that we've all been waiting for. So may Hashem give us the strength and the courage and the faith to make our hearts into a mishkan, into a tabernacle, through which Hashem can shine a light, the light, the light of salvation to all of mankind. And now before I say goodbye, and I, I bless you in the name of Hashem, remember, hang on for Tehillah. I'm going to be here too, listening to every word. Hang on for Tehillah, who's going to share a very interesting and enlightening explanation of what is going on on this whole frontier in Israel. Anyways, I love you so much, my friends. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to share with you, to connect with you, to pray for you, and to bless you.
May Hashem bless and protect you. May He shine His light and His face and His countenance upon you. And may He give you peace. Amen. Shalom, my friends. Stay in touch. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.